Paul in this chapter keeps repeating a, a phrase at the beginning and the middle, and he also uh, quoted at the whole beginning of the letter, and he said, for this reason, for this reason. In the beginning of the letter, he tells us, for this reason, I'm weeping. And and I want us to understand, like, Paul's reason for writing this letter, Paul's reason for weeping is, is Paul's sitting in jail. And he's in jail because he was trying to bring Gentiles and Jews together under one unified message. History tells us that's why he was in jail at this time. A little bit of Acts tells us that's what he had gotten in trouble for. And as he's writing this, he goes, man, I don't want my people, the, the, the churches that I've started, especially Ephesus, which we know is probably one of his more prideful churches as far as like what he's proud of. Um, not prideful in a negative way, but he's just. He's proud of them because of the difference they're making. They are in a very, we talked about in week one, they're in a very, very rough area and they've got a lot of bad stuff all around them. And Paul's just glad that they could be the light in this darkness. But what Paul's worried about when he keeps saying this reason is he pauses and he's like, man, you know, last week we talked about this unity and he's like, I, I don't want them to think that this unity is what's going to get them in the same place I'm in. And if it does, that's okay. You know, and that's so, so Paul kind of pauses and he, and he wants to make sure that, that they understand, like, being light and darkness is a good thing, even if it's got bad outcomes. So as he's sitting in this thing and he begins to weep for these people and he's, he's worried and all, it kind of makes me think of something that I don't know a lot of you even, even knew about. Um, I asked Crystal to find a picture of it. She was like, I didn't even know that happened, but not quite two years after September 11th, what they call the city that never sleeps, New York had a, a total blackout. I mean, they lost complete power over everything. And in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that despair, you can imagine a city that's never had all the lights cut off. I think they said the last time it happened was in the 60s, uh, which is, you know, just insane to, to me. But in the midst of that, here, here's a picture, not a good one. I really couldn't find, and, and Crystal wasn't able to, to find any either. But, but in the midst of that, the Statue of Liberty still lit up. And I'm not trying to make the Statue of Liberty no idol or, or anything like that, but but there's no doubt about this that light and darkness brings a little bit of hope. Right? I mean, in the midst of all the COVID crap and everything else going on, we need some good reports. You know, we need that lightness. We need we need something as funny as or, or as you know as, as bad as it sounds, but as true as it is. We need to know that, man, even though you got it, like now you got antibodies against it. There's some good stuff. That comes after stuff, you know, and, and we need that. So as I, as I, I want you to see this picture, like as, as the Statue of Liberty is is shining and all, the very question some of you may be thinking that they thought was, how in the world is it the only thing that is lit up in the city of New York while there's a complete blackout going on? And if you research and check it out, it's because the Statue of Liberty gets its power source from New Jersey. But think about it. In the midst of darkness and despair, the only reason it's able to stay lit is because it had a different power source. So as Paul writes this section to the Ephesians and he pauses here for this, this power source, you might as well write down this morning and ask yourself, what am I plugged into? Because if you're plugged into the social media and all the junk that's outside, you're going to live in darkness and despair just like the whole rest of this city is except for maybe a cell phone or two of the little dots in the background I see that are, or maybe those are some of the old people that kept their lanterns um, and, and, and knew what happens when power goes out. But 
But think about it. If you're plugged into the wrong power source, guys, or if you're plugged into the same power source as what's causing all the darkness, there's nothing sustainable for you. But what I love is, man, look how bright. Look how bright she looks at this moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, like darkness sometimes allows light to shine a little brighter. Am I right? You know, Head has that praise report about, about Chase coming home. And, and man, I, I didn't know what to think Wednesday. I never even thought it was a real thing. But there was a chance the birth parents, in case y'all don't know, Dano and Laura adopted this little boy. He's at their house for almost a whole week. Uh, come Wednesday because of rules and regulations and all over there, the parents have until that day to decide for sure if they want to sign on the dotted line or, or take it back. So Wednesday I get a message, Chase is gone. Mama decided to come back and take this newborn baby that we've had and we've been tending to and we've, we've taken pictures and made memories with and man, that's, that's darkness. You know what I'm saying? Like that is, that is an, that is an unsustainable feeling that has to take over. And, and you go a day and you go two days. And then, of course, as a pastor, I kind of had to laugh because on the third day <laughs> I get another message back that says Chase is home. And I didn't have to ask. I thought he was already home. You said like I thought I knew what home meant. It was the right home. You, you know what I'm saying? But but then you got to sit and you wonder, like, why did God do it this way? And it's because that light can shine so much brighter when it's surrounded by total darkness. You know what I'm saying? Like, can you ever imagine what that testimony will be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, longer than that? You know what I'm saying? Like, that that's something none of us in this room will ever be able to, hopefully, <laughs> will ever never be able to relate to that feeling of losing it all and then it being brought back to you. It wasn't nothing they had to go. They didn't argue. It wasn't a, no, we think it, it should be this way. It was, it was, it was a complete understanding. It was complete peace in a weird way that didn't make sense to anybody on the outside. And I think that, that they, that, that I don't know if you could call it God wanting to give them one more test. Like they ain't had enough tests in life already. But, but, but in the, in the midst of that, that they're growing, they're strengthened and, 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 and they learn. And God says, hold on, I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring it back to you. You know, that, that that's just awesomeness, guys. And when we get to this and, and, and Paul commands this hard thing of last week, I don't, I don't want to, I know we weren't together, but I don't want as far as physically together. I don't want you to neglect what Paul was talking about at the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, when he talks about a unified church. A unified group of believers that, that come in and they look different and they talk different and they act different and they and they dress different. And, and I don't know if we're going to get to wear our own clothes in heaven. But I've always just had this picture and it just might be a messed up brain cell inside of me or whatever. But I've always had this picture like when I get to heaven, man, it's going to look something like what we look like on a Sunday. I'm serious. There's going to be dudes wearing hats. There's going to be flip flops. There's going to be shorts. You know, there's going to be some suits and ties. You know, there's just going to be a vast array of looking people. And I don't even know if we'll get to see people in that same sense. In the kingdom, you know, when, when we all get together and, and have our worship services and, and that kind of stuff. And we're about, you know, going about the kingdom and, and doing our stuff and, and whatnot. But, but I picture there'll be some way we'll be able to tell that, that there's such a vast array of differentness. But there's one thing that unites us. And Paul gets on this section. He goes, I want you guys to make sure you understand the importance of this unity. I told you last week online that, that, that it, it's, it's almost humorous to me that Paul goes through all this stuff 
theology-wise about the, 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 the vastness of God and what he's done for us and, and how that's the only thing that can pay for us and making sure we understand the theological truths that have to be there. And then the very first thing he does that you could say is kind of like an application is he says, now all you little brats better get along. You, you, you ever had mom and dad tell you that? Grow up with siblings or cousins or, you know, you go to a classroom and you, you just get told, now it's time for y'all to get along. You know, it's, it's time for you to be, be, be one and be unified together. And here's what he says. I want to go back to a section in three from last week. I'm going to start in, in chapter or verse 14 for today, just so you know. But I want to go back to 10 because I think it sums up the end of two and three. And he says, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heaven. What Paul is saying is, is the unified church is going to be proof of the wisdom of Christ, the power of Christ. Meaning this, what, what did Jesus say? The world will know that you love me by the way you love one another. So in other words, if the world looks at you and they wonder, man, I don't know if I want to be part of a group that's cheating one another like that, then maybe they don't know you love the Lord either. Then he goes on to verse 11. He says, this is according to the eternal purpose accomplished in Christ. That's the only thing that could accomplish it because we couldn't do it on our own. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Verse 13, so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions. Here's where he's got to pause again. He realizes as he's writing and as he's saying this thing and he's talking about how important it is for them to get together and be unified of one body, Jew, Gentile. You know, not, not, not just, just race like we think of, but, but a vast array of stuff. He says, I know you guys know that I'm in jail for this reason. I know you guys know I'm chained up and I'm in a dark spot because I've chosen to go this path. But I don't want you to be discouraged over my afflictions. I don't want you to be upset and think that, that this is the wrong way because, because of what I'm going through. Because on your behalf, they are actually for your glory. Wow. And, and, and it's here that Paul, Paul's got to have mid-chapter three, one of those pause moments. We talked about it in chapter one. Remember, he, he jumped right into this letter and he started writing it. Out. And I don't know if you guys have ever like remember back in the day when you used to, I guess now it's just a text message or something to a, to a girl when you like her. But, but, but some of us are still old enough to, to have originally written like a love letter. You know, and you write that very first letter and you're going on and on about all the goodness and, and all the stuff. And then you got to pause for a minute. And you're like, I, I don't know if they understand what I'm saying. You know, I don't, I don't know if they agree with what I'm, I'm thinking at this moment. And that's where Paul, Paul gets it in the beginning. He starts jumping into this letter and then he pauses and he prays for us. What does he pray in the beginning? He prays that we will have knowledge. Because he knows flat out, like if you don't understand it, you're not going to be able to do it. And he does the same thing and he, and he finishes this whole thing on theology and he gets to this thought about unity. And, and then he talks about this, this power. And then he pauses. He's like, I know you guys know that I'm in, in jail for this reason. I know you guys know I'm going through some afflictions right now. He says, now I just need to, I just need to stop and, and pray for you one more time. Paul knew the power of prayer and he knew they would never get this understanding without some extra power into understanding. And of all the things that need to happen to make a church great, guys, one of the first requirements for, for a church to be great is that it's a church that's prayed for. And not prayed in, prayed for, prayed over. They say that Spurgeon, after he bought the, the amphitheater, 
or not amphitheater, sorry, just, just, just the theater itself. And, and it began to have, I guess you could call that the first, since we thought we were the first with mega churches. Spurgeon had three to 6,000 people a weekend, you know, hundreds of years ago. So, so, you know, th- this guy had it going on. Different services where people would come in and, and sit in a theater that he purchased to preach at a, and, and a visiting pastor, as a matter of fact, the whole team of them, it, it says, had, had came by and they wanted to check it out. They wanted to see me. What, what are you doing that's making this big difference? And they walk around and they tour everything. And Spurgeon stops a mid-tour that says, one of the guys writes about it, and he says, hey, you want to see where the power of this church comes from? And all of them are all giddy. They're like, yes, we're going to get to know Spurgeon's trick. Like, we're going to get to figure out, like, what it is so we can go back and do this in our own towns, in our own communities. And he walks them through the theater to the very back. And then it says they walk down this long, dark hallway. And it's just a door at the end of it. And it says that Spurgeon quietly opened the door. And, and when they looked in that room, he, you know, he, he did the little, the guy says he did a little finger over his nose and, and he wanted him to look at, and when they looked in, it said that there was hundreds. One of the guys said 700. I don't know how true that is, but if, if he was guessing that high, there's definitely hundreds, right? Hundreds of people just on their knees praying. That's before church, guys. Service ain't started yet. Spurgeon says, you want to see what's making this? It's not my fancy words. It's not that I've interpreted scripture any special way. It, 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 it's nothing but this room right here. And this room right here is hundreds of guys that get together and gals that get together every morning before we even have a service. And they just begin to pray over it. They were probably praying over Spurgeon's words. They were praying over the spirit to move. They were praying over every chair and if a room's room. They were praying if they had technology back then, they'd have been praying over the little wires that, that run and get that signal out there to the rest of the people to see it. And, and they were just bathed in prayer. One of the guys wrote that he said he never saw anybody come out of there. So he can only assume that they prayed the entire service that way. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if we just had a group of people that we locked up in a, in a back room somewhere with no windows and, and no distractions and no way. And we just told them, you just start praying right now for the seeds that's about to get scattered. And matter of fact, you just pray the whole time the sun and the rain scatters and shines down on the seeds. And we'll let you know at the end when you can come out of your little cave. I don't know if Spurgeon had to ask them to do it, to be honest. So he never said. He never wrote about what made them do it. He just said a group of people started getting together every morning and praying, and it got so big they had to go to a different room to do so. That 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 right there, guys, you can say it this way. A prayerless ministry is a powerless ministry. If we're not willing to pray over our ministry, if the church isn't willing to pray, the church will never be great. And I don't just mean Brookhaven. I mean the church as a whole. And that's what Paul is so worried about as he writes these things. He goes, I don't want doubt and fear and worry. Imagine all those things that are going through our heads right now with everything going on outside. He said, I don't want those things to come in and get you distracted from what the gospel really is. What the good news about living this way really is. So so he says, for a church to be great, it's got to be prayed for, and it's got to be prayed for often. For great things to happen in the church, people got to begin praying for the church. You, you want to gauge what matters to you? You, you, you? We talk about bank accounts all the time and, and all that kind of stuff. You want to gauge what really matters to you? Gauge your prayer life. I can guarantee you, this ain't no guessing game. I can promise you, what you pray about most is what matters to you most. 
We took the last week. I'm not even going to lie to you. We took the last week and we didn't pray as far as our, our, our family prayer at the, at the end, which excluded mama because we had her locked up in the closet at the other end of the house. So she didn't share none of her disease with us. You know, but, 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 you know, as that's going, we, we didn't pray for nothing other than those being affected by coronavirus. Whether it was those at home, whether it was those affected by the fear because of those at home, whether it was, it was those that now in worry and doubt about what to do and how to handle it. I mean, it, it was all based on that. That one thing for one whole week. Why? Because for that whole week, that's what mattered most. Not, not in fact of, oh, you, you were just doing that. So you, no, it, it wasn't a healing thing. It was so that it could run its process. But it was also because we, we are so, and I said it last week, we've allowed stuff with this virus to divide us just like we allow everything else to divide us. Who, 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 what is the chances that we would get to this section in Scripture at the exact moment we're at the most divided we've ever been as, as groups of, of what is supposed to be the body of Christ? I tell you right now, there's going to be new denominations started over how you handled and what you dealt with on stupid COVID-19. Y'all think I'm laughing. Now, some of people will remember when, when different denominations and stuff got started over if you had to dunk them twice or dunk them once or, or sprinkle. I, I ain't seen an argument in scripture about that yet, by the way. Now, I can argue and know what immerse means and all that. I don't need none of y'all to tell me that on the back porch, okay? But when I read scripture, there, there's no debate. There's not like they sat down as a group and had debates over that kind of stuff. We argue over some of the stupidest stuff that we could ever come up with arguing over. Right? Let's be honest about it, right? So I'm telling you right now, just give us some time. Somehow there'll be a different denomination, a different religion started about how we handled COVID-19 and vaccines and all the other junk that comes with it. Why? Because we let the enemy come in and just figure out one more way to separate us, to divide us, to get us arguing, to get us debating. To get us not on the same page together, to do one thing, which is the enemy's favorite tactic. I said it last week, to break up unity. And if he can break up unity, what, what has he done? What, what, what did the verse say back in 10? This is so the world will know the multifaceted wisdom of God. So therefore, if Satan can break it up, what's it going to tell the world? Huh, there is no multifaceted wisdom of God. If we stop loving one another, what's it going to tell the world? Then evidently we don't love Christ. I want us to look at this this prayer this morning and and look at what Paul says. And and here's what he says. Here's what I love, man. When he says for this reason, understand this. This reason is God's purpose the whole time. Every time he refers back to for this reason, he's making sure like I'm staying on track. This is why God wants me writing you. I'm staying on track. This is why I've weeped and cried for you. Don't forget that. At the beginning when he said I've just begun to weep over you guys. I don't know if you've ever gotten to a stage where you weep over over somebody because you're worried about what may be, you know, around them in a, in, in a good way. For God's purpose, Paul's praying. Look what he says, verse 14. For this reason, the basis of Paul's prayer is the knowledge of God's purpose, which means this. He had to know God's will, which means this for us. We can't pray effectively until we have insight into God's purpose and will. Right. We can't pray as effectively as Paul is praying unless we have insight into God's purpose and will. So, so how do we get that? You got to get in the Word. You got to get into the studies. You you got to dive into stuff. You got you got you got to do what the Word says. Verse fifteen. Here's what he says: From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul is still on this thing about unity, and he, and, and he calls 
Abba, Father, you know, and he says, that's daddy for all of us, the body of Christ, father of both the Jew and the Gentile. And then he gets to verse 16 where we get some. Really some hard, honest truth, if we want to be have our spirit open to it, and he prays this in 16. 16 says, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory. Notice that I won't need to I won't need to grant according to the riches of, of his glory. What is the riches of his glory? You ever, you ever looked at stuff back in, back in time where they had like actual kings? And, and you notice like what they would bring when they would come to visit a new king? Treasure chests of stuff. Right? Gold, silver. Sometimes they'd bring a herd of cattle and, and, and they, they would bring it. Why? Because to bring anything less would make them like old common noblemen. Right? And that's not what they wanted to be. They wanted to make sure the world knew, like, I'm a king. Right? Like, you're going to know I've come up in this area. So I think Paul's thinking about that. If Paul's praying, he goes, God, I want you to come on in like them kings used to come with an entourage. Right? Bring, bring, your, bring your group with you. And that glorious riches of your glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being. Through his spirit. The very first area Paul begins to pray for when he realizes this isn't the outside physical body. It's the inner man. It's the, it's the inner man. We all understand the importance of physical strength on the outside, but many of us are exceedingly weak in the inner man. And Paul is praying and he says, guys, the area we neglect is the area we begin to lose our strength in. Think about it. That's why we pick on guys who skip leg day at the gym. Walk around with a prison body up top and then chicken legs as soon as they, they wear a pair of shorts. You know what I'm saying? Like we, they, they've neglected an area. So that area is the one that's the weak one. And Paul gets on this thing and he says that the area you're neglecting might just be what's going on on the inner man. Let, let me ask you this, since you, since you, you may be disagreeing thing. Oh, I'm all about you may be one of those. I know you ain't got many in your spiritual holy corner over here today, but 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 think about it. They online, they watching probably, right? But 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 you try to say, well, you don't understand. Like I, I really do care more about the inner than the than the outer, and, and you go through all this stuff. How much time do you spend this morning getting ready physically? Now that counts drinking your coffee because you needed your energy. Oh, there's thirty more minutes because I had a second cup. It counts combing your hair. Me and Doug had to make sure we got all ours in order, right? If you shaved, it counts that. It counts picking out your clothes. It counts showering. It counts brushing your teeth. It counts having a pause praise break because you can see the toothpaste, right? Picking out your shoes, deciding you know, to drive here and, and, and getting to sleep out of it. All of that, right? How much time do you spend getting your inner being ready? Be honest about it. Don't say it out loud because everybody think you're a sinner, right? But be honest on the inside about it. How much time did you spend getting ready for the Lord's word this morning physically versus spiritually on the inner man? If we're all honest, I think the physical normally wins. I can tell you on Sunday morning, the inner man wins for me, but I'm also ashamed to know that he doesn't win it every day. Right? I got hours on the inner man on a, on a Sunday morning. I got about 15 minutes to get this pretty for you guys on the physical. Right? 
But that, is that supposed to just be a Sunday thing? No. Paul prays that that inner man will get this way and that inner being will be strengthened. Why, why is that so necessary? And understand this. It's necessary because the only way we'll ever to truly be able to be all that God wants us to be is if it starts on the inside and works its way out. It's necessary because Jesus himself, when he's sitting with his disciples and his apostles, he said he says in his own prayer that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Which he himself is acknowledging, then there's a struggle between the two. I don't know about any, anybody else like the Hulk growing up or still to this day. I'm still waiting on one more good Hulk movie. They, they, they ain't nailed the Hulk down yet. They've gotten really close on a couple. Disney's done a better job than everybody else and, and with Marvel and, and getting it going. But we need one more good Hulk movie. You know, see, that's the man I'm talking about. Any man that's got this battle on the inside, you ought to love a Hulk movie. Because what he goes through is what we go through spiritually a lot of times if we're honest. Think about it. There's a there's an inner, inner battle going on inside of us. That's what Jesus even wrote about it and he talked about. Right? And he even talked about it after his disciples had fasted, not had nothing to eat, not had nothing to sleep for a while. And what does the Hulk say? You won't like me when I'm hungry. Because he couldn't speak Portuguese really well in the second Hulk. So he messed up and he meant angry. But he said hangry. And a lot of you can really relate with that a lot better than the angry part. Right? That, that's where he's at. And that's what he's worried about. Now, as this battle goes on, he's got to decide who's going to win. That's the same thing that goes on inside each of us. We've got a spirit living within us placed by the Holy Spirit that is in a battle every day with our inherited body from Adam. And Paul is writing and he says the inner man has got to win this thing. Jesus Christ comes and he lives into his heart. And here's what he says, John 14, 23. Relates real good with what he finishes in verse 17. It says this, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And we all know that. We all jump straight to that, right? But we forget the second part. My father will love him and will make him come to me and make our home with him. Wow. We're so quick to remind people all the time, oh man, if you love him, you'll obey. But, but we leave out the blessing. Don't we do that all the time with God's word? You realize God's word is not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a blessing. It's a love letter from a God who, from a father who loves you, not, not a, not a list of law of commands from your boss who's a jerk. Right? And he writes this thing and, and, and he tells him this and I, I don't often think that the message gets it a little better and it doesn't get it better theologically, okay? So hold your little panties in a wad. But, 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 but the message puts it this way. Because a loveless world, does that not describe the world we live in a lot of times? Because a loveless world said Jesus, is a sightless world. Meaning because they don't have something they love, they're blind. Right? They're sitting in the dark because they're not tied into the ride. Different power source. They look just like all the darkness that was around that statue in the picture. Right? If anyone loves me, he'll carefully keep my word. I love how it does add that word carefully. Because you got to intentionally and carefully keep the word of God. Right? And my father will love him. And here's what it says. Here's the cool part. And we'll move right into the neighborhood. Right. We move right into the neighborhood. We talk about unity and all. You want to know if you can break some unity bears? It's it's if you a white boy that gets invited to the cookouts. Now, if you, if you ain't never been invited to the cookout, you don't know what I'm talking about. Right. You laugh. I'm telling you, man. When, when, when you're the oddball out, but, but you've been invited in. Right. When, when you look a little different than everybody else who's at that cookout. Right. But you was invited there. That's when you know you started breaking some barriers. I'm telling you, right? 
So, so, so as he goes this thing and he tells him, he goes, well, me and my father, we're going to move into the neighborhood. It goes back to verse 17 in Ephesians 3 that Paul's writing about. And he says that Christ may, uses this word, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Dwell, literally translated, and to settle down and feel at home. Now, now keep in mind this, at the beginning, Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Christ is already a resident in the hearts of these Ephesians. Because in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul calls them what? Saints. Which means he's writing to a group of believers, right? But now when Paul gets to chapter 3, he says, guys, we got to get a deeper experience between us and Christ. And for In order for it to get deeper, then Christ, what he yearns for, is to settle down and feel at home in our hearts. To deepen this relationship, right? And the longer somebody dwells somewhere, the more change that takes place. Am I, am I right about that? The longer somebody stays somewhere, the more they begin to, to make it their own, right? He don't want to ju- just come into your house. He wants to come and feel comfortable being there. You guys ever went to somebody's house that you never got comfortable in? Be, be honest about it, right? Like you sat there and they opened the door and let you in, but they didn't let you go back to the bedroom. You know what I'm saying? They didn't let you go too far down the hallway without following you. You know, like you, you, just, you were never really welcome and comfortable there. You were allowed in a, in a certain area for a certain time period. And then you got the vibe. It's time for you to get out. That, that, that's the difference. Sometimes God says, I, I not only want to come in and, and, and be in your house. I want to be comfortable being there. And how do I get comfortable being there to that same part in verse 17? Because you guys are to be rooted and grounded in love. The driving force behind everything in the believer's life is that love. Right. Rooted and grounded in love. He, he uses two pictures there that he's used in some of his other words, that, that that whole root thing. You know, you picture them roots growing and getting around there. And then that grounded thing where he just talked about the, the building and the cornerstone and all that. And he, here's what he's saying with the in love, by the way. I think he's still thinking about what he just wrote about in chapter two. And he's talking about the love for one another. Rooted and grounded in a love for one another. Rooted and grounded in, in unity. A love that's transformed. A love that transformed. You, you, when you get transformed, you don't look and act the same. Go back to the whole. There wasn't no guessing game, right? When he had lost the battle and the big green fella took over. He looked different. He acted different, right? I mean, his abilities were different. It also transformed what those outside of him saw, right? Think about this. When Paul talks about this transformation, he's saying, guys, this unity, not division, is going to blow the minds of those outside watching. And that's why, I go back to verse 10, that's why it's going to explain the, the, the growth of Christ and the power of Christ and the wisdom of Christ. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. I said translation gets the attention of those that see it. He, he went the opposite route and wrote, history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. What he was saying was that in the middle of a time period where where it could have been like a wildfire about to take over in a positive way. They're, they're not going to have to write about what bad people did. What they're going to remember is the silence of so-called good people. Church, I think we've been silent for too long. Right? With silence, there's no transformation. 
It's when people start doing something that stuff gets noticed. If we continue to do nothing over and over and over again, what? We get the same results. And maybe we're okay with that. I said that yesterday after the boys game. I said, if we keep doing the same thing, we're going to keep getting the same results. That's the definition of insanity. And I said, I said, something's got to change. And my wife, she said, maybe somebody's happy with that. Maybe somebody's okay with the results we're getting. And maybe they are, but maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe some of us are happy to have church the way we have it. But Paul is saying there's still some changes that need to take place inside of them. If you look around and you're all white, there's a problem. So, yeah, there's a problem other than Cliff. Thanks, brother. Way to rock that Asian. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you the one percenter. Oh, we'll get you a vest and you can join the motorcycle club. Right? I mean, you got to understand this, though, guys. Paul is saying there's a problem when we all look alike. That's not unified. That's identified. Right? We're not called to be identical. We're called to be unified. So, so there's a big difference there. And, and Paul goes on this thing and, and, and he's doing this thing and, and he's writing about this thing. And he says, if we don't do nothing, it's never going to get noticed. The same thing Martin Luther King was saying. He goes, if nothing gets done, it's not going to be addressed. And here's what he prays. I guess you call this point one. Don't worry, just had a longer intro than normal. Point one, praying for God's power provides transformation. We kind of already been talking about the transformation, so it's not like it's a new idea, right? So in 16 and 17, he's saying that true transformation has to start at the heart level, the inner man. That's why he's been writing about all this stuff. He goes, I don't want you to just be able to change all the stuff you, you do and get a checklist going. And, and it doesn't say what about it. It doesn't say that God came in to give you a makeover. It doesn't say that he came in to, to hide some sin. It doesn't even say that he came in to give you some help, self-help techniques. You know the number one thing searched for in the last 20-something months, however long COVID's been going on, it, the number one thing searched for, whether it be a book or, or a video or anything else, is self-help techniques. Self-motivation, you could Google it that way, right? And when Paul comes in and Paul stops and he starts praying about and he says, there's got to be something on the inner being dwelling there because your self-help ain't going to do it, right? Let me ask you this way. What is self-help and motivation going to do when life gets real dark? What is a self-help book going to do when somebody comes and takes the baby that you've had for a week at your house away from you? What's self-help going to do? What's self-motivation going to do? What's, what's self-motivation going to do when your spouse you got caught cheating on? What's it going to do? Well, at least they had a lot of love to go around. That's your self-help? That's your, that's your motivation? That's it? That's what you got? No. Self-help and motivation ain't going to do nothing when life gets dark. So what Paul says is there's got to be something going on on this inner man. Maybe you can say it this way. It's not about the things we should do. It's the power source we already got. Right? Paul's pleading with us to change what from the inside out. Transformation comes from a different power source than things we possess. You can say it this way. If we, if we agree that we are broken, broken things don't fix themselves. Right? So it says that we need Christ to come in and do what? Verse 17. To dwell there. To take up residence there. To completely and be comfortable at home with us. It means that Jesus Christ can come into your house and put his feet up on the coffee table. Right? It means that he's allowed to roam the house. He's allowed to go to the other room. He can take a nap. Right? 
And me, this is this is how you know you talk about toothpaste, man. First thing that came to my head, you talk about being a messed up in the head kind of fellow, right? When you talk about toothpaste, when somebody takes up residence there, y'all y'all got their toothpaste on your mirror in the front. You know what I'm saying, right? You say, Jesus, I want you to be so comfortable that your toothpaste fit can be on the mirror in the bathroom. Except for Jesus to clean his toothpaste mirror spit off. Some people won't at 360 Campbell Road. Right? This is what he's saying. And Paul's writing this thing. Let's go ahead and get real on it, right? Because this is the power. And if we're going to talk about it being Christ that dwells in us, here's what it means. It means this is something that we receive and not achieve. You get your self-help books and all that stuff going on. You're trying to achieve something on your own. And that, that's just darkness waiting to happen, right? You're waiting on the power outage is what you're waiting on. But but it says if you got a different power source, this is something you, you receive and not achieve. And, and some of you are thinking right now, well, hold on, Pastor. I've been in church for a long time, and I'm still going through the same stuff I've been going through. Some of you thinking, I still got the same struggle in my marriage. I'm still having the same struggle with this. I'm still arguing with this. I'm still going through this. So I want you to, I want to ask yourself this right here and write it down. Lord, don't answer out loud. Is your heart a home or a hotel for Christ? Is your heart a home or a hotel for Christ? Because when you buy a home, you invest in it. I didn't realize how much that stuff kind of mattered to me until three or four years ago. We were moving out of the first home we ever had. Now, we, we had a little a little apartment we called the Love Shack in the ghetto for a little while while our house was getting built. We was ready to get out of there. Right. So them couple months didn't matter. But I, I was the last one at our house right after we sold it in Jedburg and and I made a video, man. I felt like one of them old sobby girly guys. You know, I'm just telling you, man. And I took that video and I went over to the kids room. Where all three kids had grown up in this room and we had marked on their little wall how tall they had gotten. I looked at, at, at the breakfast nook that, that I you know, had built for for mama so mama could be happy with, with, with the way it looked. And, and it was still there. And I looked at the hardwood floors and how we got rid of that nasty carpet. I looked at, at this front room that was painted in dark blue and cowboys gray because we were sold out regardless of what they was doing at the time. And we still are. You women want to find you a loyal man. You find a Gamecock fan or a Cowboys fan. They are loyal. You ain't got to worry about them running around on you. They will stick with you through losing seasons and all. Right? <laughs> but, but, but you think about it. I looked at that thing and then I looked at the grass that I cut. And then I went to the backyard and I was like, man, I put every piece of sod in here myself. And I looked at the fence. I remember having a dad and an uncle stop by and help build the, the privacy fence and, and, and all that stuff. Why? Because I had invested into that. I made it a home. I made it me. Right? Somebody might have come in there and realized it was Dallas Cowboy Colors and they might have tried their hardest to paint over it. Right? Because they, it wasn't them. When it's your home, you invest in it. You make it like you. I can walk in y'all's homes, I promise you, and tell you the things you love. Just give me a couple minutes. Right? I can flip through your TV and figure out things you like by the history of what you've been watching. Some of y'all thinking, for God's sake, please don't go through my remote and look at what I've been watching. Right? If you're not worried about me seeing it, what you think Jesus think when he watching, you watch it. Right? We, we invest in it. And the problem is this right here, guys. 
And, and, and here's the cool thing. I guess you could say this when you think about a home. Like that home begins to take on your personalities and your traits. So if we're looking at this verse in 17 where he says he wants to dwell, he wants to take up residence inside of us. As the message said from John, him and his daddy want to move into the neighborhood, right? Do we look like the traits and the personalities of Christ if we're his home? Or is the problem that we've made Jesus a maid and not a landlord? We're open to Jesus coming on in the living room and dusting off the table, but we don't want him to rearrange the furniture. Right? Jesus, you can come in and clean things up, but don't move nothing around. Don't rearrange it. Don't shift things. Don't make things different. God, you, you, you know, your Lord, you, you can come on in and you can sweep and you can wipe down the wall, but I don't want you going through my junk drawers and looking under my bed. Right? We put up restrictions. He's no longer comfortably allowed to be at your house unless he's doing what you want him to do. So ask yourself again the big question. Is my heart a home or a hotel where Jesus is allowed to check in? You know, every hotel got a check in and a check out, right? Y'all know why? Let's think about, think about business reasons. This ain't no church question. Why they got a check in and a check out? All right, you got to pay your bill. What else, though? You close on to getting paid. It's kind of the same principle behind why McDonald's has literally had studies done to make sure their chairs aren't comfortable. Hint, hint. What is it? You ain't going to stay long because they want somebody else to come in. Check in and check out so that somebody else can take up residence in the hotel. So then if you treated Jesus like he's checking into a hotel, then when he checks out, what checks in? When Jesus checks out, I tell you what checks in. Greed checks in. You begin to get a little prideful when he checks out. When he checks out, pornography checks in. Lust checks in. Hate checks in. I don't know what it is for you, but what is it? When Jesus checks out, something's checking in. That's why it's supposed to be a home and not a hotel. What if we would just invite Jesus into our heart and allow him to make it a home? What, what if we'd invite Jesus in? See, some of y'all be treating Jesus like he, like he your mistress. He's in the house and then when the wife gets home, you got to hustle him out the back door so that she don't know. What if we let him stay? What if we let him stay? I tell you what would happen. Some stuff might try to check in, but Jesus is a man man. He gonna take care of some stuff that got to go. You know what I'm saying? Like, he ain't going to share. Some stuff's going to get checked right on out whether it wants to get checked out or not. It's going to be thrown out. So if we would just let Jesus come in as a home and hang around and stay when unwanted guests come wanted to stop by, Jesus would take care of them. Huh? You let him come into the desk drawer, the, the junk drawer. I know y'all got one. He clean it out. You know what I'm saying? You'd, you'd be looking months later. Where did I put that one thing? You'd have to call Jesus and ask him, where'd you do it? Right? Is Jesus the center of your life or is he a center of your songs that you're singing on Sunday? Maybe that's a good way to put it, right? He's not meant to be an addition to your life. He's supposed to be your life. Look at John chapter 15, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you. Now, we quick to quote that last part, right? You just ask whatever you want, it'll be done for you. Why you want to change the word of the Lord? 
He said, if you if there's a condition, we don't I don't know why the Baptist church is afraid of conditions. Right. We all right with conditions on everything else in life, but we're not OK with conditions when it comes to our covenant with our father. He says, if you remain in me and if my words remain in you, then ask whatever you want to be done. You know why he can make that promise? Because if you remain in him and his words remain in you, then whatever you ask is going to be what he wanted. I'm being serious. Think about it. It's kind of like a cop out for God. He's got nothing to worry about. Because if he's taking up residence inside of you and it's his home and he's living there and he's in control of things there, then he ain't got to worry about it. You're going to want to paint the room Dallas Cowboy colors. Right? Huh? If you're in this house, you will. There's a little touch of red in certain areas of the room, I think, for mama, right? Patriots. <laughs> what did we just say a few minutes ago? God's word is supposed to be a burden, or not, not meant to be a burden, but a blessing? What does what, what Jesus Christ says? This is the bread of life. Is that, is that not a good thing? Right? Some of the, some of the things that, that, that we are, some of the things we ought to be doing, maybe commands, but you ever think about it, they become blessings? How many of y'all got, I, I got, I got a box of Oreos last night, right? And I, and I wasn't going to touch them. And then Crystal went to bed and the boys went to bed and I was there by myself. Just me and the computer and the Bible and a cup of coffee. I only ate one strand. I didn't eat the whole box, but it was the double stuffs, Right. So I start playing with it because me and Duke would be arguing over sometimes like what is the right way to eat an Oreo? You know, what, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you got laws on how you eat certain things, right? Some people believe you got to twist them open and lick the cream out of the inside. And then I don't know what you do with the, the cookie after that. But, you know, some people believe you eat it still. Some people believe you throw it. Some people believe you got to dip it. You know, so I got my cup of coffee. I said, I'm, I'm going to dip some. Then. You leave a man by himself long enough with a box of Oreos, right? Then I said, I'm going to try that. He's his double stuff. I'm going to do two Oreos at once. It's just soft enough where you can still get it all in and be perfection, baby. Right? So then I said, what if I dip in the third, but my cup wasn't big enough? So I changed the law, you know, because you changed the law to to, to make it eventually. Right. So I, I got two Oreos this way and one Oreo that way in my cup. And then when I come out, I drop. It. Oh, it was so perfect, man. I'm telling you right now, it was awesomeness. But the rules I had made then became a blessing. They had you going to tell me three Oreos double stuff in your mouth at once ain't a blessing. You ain't never had Oreos that way. Right. Is it not the same thing with the word of God, guys? Except for rather than us getting to make up the rules on how we eat it, he's got the rules, right? And if you follow the rules long enough and the commands long enough, you realize, man, these commands aren't a burden any longer. They're a blessing. Like you begin to love doing them. Like you get excited about times of the year. You get excited about what God's doing. And you get excited about him, him changing things in you. Like that power gets inside of you. And when that power gets inside of you, you can't be the same no more. Right? So it's okay. I want to make sure we understand this as believers. It's okay for the, the laws, the commands to become a blessing. We've got this, this theory in the church. Like it's always got to be this bad thing. It ain't. 
I don't think God intended for it to be bad. You think when he created the, the Garden of Eden and, and he looked out and he said, you guys can have everything except that. You think he wanted them to focus on the one exception? No, but that's where their mind went. Same place our mind goes sometimes. And he, look at it. He said, you can have what? Everything else. Anything you want. Except for that one. What is it about our messed up heads where we can have everything but yet we focus on the one thing. What the one thing? One thing that we weren't allowed to have. And that's what messed it up, right? Man. You, you could ask it this way when we talk about blessings and, and commands. And all, who, who do you turn to when you need help? Huh? How many of you, you, when you realized last week, man, so many people in the church is getting, getting that Corona. How many of you Google how to not get Corona when you were around a lot of Corona? Huh? You Googled it. You YouTube it. You watched videos on it. You did all that. How come you didn't turn to Jesus about it? That's our problem. I don't just mean with Corona. That's just something funny because of the time period, right? But, but how many times do we Google a solution to something? We YouTube a solution to something rather than turn to the Lord for it. Right? Here, here's the problem. You, you could write it down this way. Reliance on ourselves. Reliance on others or reliance on the outcome eventually leads to either despair or pride. And Paul knew that. That's why he wants to make sure like this, this isn't something you achieve, guys. This, this is a power that you've received. And, and what I mean by that is this. You're thinking, well, I don't know if that's true all the time. Here's how it works. When it fails, it goes to our heart. What does that lead to? Despair. But when it succeeds, it goes to our head. What does that lead to? Pride. So one of two things. What we need is to understand that it's in the glory of the Lord and his riches, so therefore it goes to him. And none of the rest, right? We need a transformation, as I said, rooted and grounded in his love. Look at verse 18. Paul asked that they might be able to understand together in the community every dimension of the love of Jesus. I love it, man. Still on that unity thing. He just won't get away from it even while he's praying. May be able to comprehend with all the saints, all of them together, what is the length, the width, the height, the depth of God's love. Paul is saying, I want you to know it by experience, not just words. The world doesn't need any more words from us, by the way. I hope you all understand that. They're probably sick of hearing them. Right? They need some experience. And what Paul says is the width, length, depth, and height of this thing. It means this. Paul is saying that the love of Jesus has dimensions that we can measure. Which is kind of weird, because when you think about religious people in the world today, what do they say? Oh, well, that's you know not really a tangible thing. It's just this beautiful fiction. It's this, this sentimental belief. It's this formal theology. Paul says, no, it's a real, considerable, measurable kind of thing. In fact, I think as Paul was pausing right here to write it, he says, you know what? I don't stop to think about this. And while I was thinking about it, I've considered this way, and I've considered it that way, and I've considered it here, and I've considered it there, and I've considered it everywhere. And he's going on with this thing, and he's talking about it, and he comes up with these words. This is how you know he had to be thinking on it. And the first word he says is the wit. I think about the width of a river. Right? You, you, you know, first thing, Jeremiah would be talking about different locations because of where they live and, or used to live. And, and now we live, and I'd be like, man, how, how's the river up there? Well, it's, it's, it's a skinnier river. You know, not, not as deep in certain areas and, and, and the depth of, but, but, but man, some of our rivers, some of them can get wide. Right. You think about a wide river and here's what's awesome. You think about how that river was formed and all that means that wide river, it had to eventually cover more. 
Because there's something under it. Right? So, so, so the, when we think about the love of Jesus has width, I want you to think about like a river. A river so wide that it covers up my sin. That it covers up every circumstance in my life that, that needs to be covered up. So all things are working together for what? As God says, for, for, for his good. And then you think about it this way. When you doubt his forgiveness, you realize that you're narrowing the river. You're taking away from the width of the river. And how wide did God say it was? God said it's so wide I love the whole world, right? So it's the, it's the, it's the width of the world. Next thing Paul says. And you guys think of your own illustration. Now, these are just ones I grabbed when I was trying to think like Paul. It says the love of Jesus has length. You ever considered the length of God's love for you? Well, there's two questions you got to ask. One, when did God start loving me? Right? And what did Paul say at the beginning of this letter? He started loving you before he made and called and created the very first thing. Which means that you've been loved longer than there's been dust. Right? You've been, you've been loved by God longer than there's ever even been an earth. So that brings up a whole other kind of cool thing. When all these scientists get together and try to argue over how old earth is, every time they come out with a new bigger number, you can just smile and be like, God loved me even longer than I thought. Right? Because that's what he said. And then you got to ask the other question then, how long will he continue to love me? Well, here's the cool thing. If God loved you before you were, then therefore there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Therefore, there's nothing God you can do to make God love you less. Right? Which means that if he loved you before, then he's going to love you long after. So when you ask the second part, how long we continue, you can look back to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, where he looked and he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. A non-expirable love. It means it's going to keep on going and going and going and going. Go back to them love letters you used to write. You remember when you first started loving each other and you would write, I love you very, 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 very. And you see, you could write the most varies. That was so stupid. Right? Or, 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 or someone would write back and be like, I love you times one million. I love you times two million. I love you times ten million. See, be glad y'all ain't got to do that crap right there. Don't ever fall into that trap. Right? That, that thing just keep on going, right? Jesus said, I love you with an everlasting love, an inexpirable love. I mean, I love you more than you could ever imagine. Like, you can't measure it. Right? Then he says this. Paul says, what about the depth? Well, Philippians chapter 2, 7 and 8, he writes about the same thing. He says, how deep the love of God goes. He said that he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You can't go any lower than death on a cross, guys. So when you talk about the debt, like he, he went deep. He went deep for us. And Paul says, well, if he, if he went that deep, how high did he go? And you remember in, in Ephesians chapter two, just uh, just last week or two weeks ago, I'm sorry, in verse six. And he says, how, you, you could ask it this way. I, I imagine when he said the height of, of God's love, he said, how high does God love me? And in Ephesians two, six, he said, he lifts you all the way to the heavenly places where you're seated with Christ. We, we in our minds can't fathom anything higher than that. So Paul's got all these pictures going. He wants to make sure like this isn't something you speculate about, you guess about. This isn't just emotions and feelings. This is something you are to know. I want you to know the love of Christ is what the verse says. Number two that kind of goes with all that and ties all this together now is praying for God's power provides fulfillment. There are so many in our world that aren't fulfilled. Because they're trying to get filled on the wrong stuff. 
You realize there is literally a disease that stops the, the feeling of fulfillment inside people. So much so that, that, that when it begins to affect their stomach, they literally have to get locks on their fridges because they will eat themselves to death because they don't, they literally do not feel fulfillment in any way. That's a miserable way to be. Right? The gospel is uncomprehendable. <laughs> What I wrote out. Google didn't like that word, by the way. So I'm guessing uncomprehendable is not a word. Right. But but the guy it's uncomprehendable. So so what's Paul saying? Paul said, well, I'm going to pray that you need power to comprehend it. If it's something that's un- uncomprehendable, then you need an extra an extra knowledgeable source, an extra power source to, to make comprehendable. Romans 5, 8. <clears throat> but God proves his own love for us that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I use it because in our minds, that don't make sense. It don't make sense that somebody would die for you while you're their enemy. Right? It, it doesn't make sense that somebody would let. He didn't wait on you to get right before he died and paid for you. That's uncomprehendable. So you need some power to comprehend it. He didn't wait on you to, 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 to be one with him. He, he died while you were his enemy, while you were against him. And you, you could call it when you begin to realize this, this part of Romans, you call it a, a cross-centered identity. Your identity begins to be centered around the cross. And when you get a cross-centered identity, that gets cemented in God's love, according to what verse 17 and the rest of these are saying. Because what you realize then is that's an identity you didn't earn. You, you ever meet people that they try to struggle with identity or they do struggle with identity? I don't think they try to. They just do. I mean, they struggle with identity. They don't know who they are. You know, you, you can see it most in high school. Some of you could probably go back to high school and, and, and one year somebody would come in and be one of those, those little gothic freaks. They, they would. I mean, they'd be all decked out in the black and all. But the next year you'd see them, they'd look like Hillbilly Deluxe and come to town. You'd wonder, what happened, man? I thought you were in this clique. No, nah, I changed over the summer and became. The, they struggle with identity. Am I right? And then you'll see them again and they'll be like with the punk rockers. Right? And, and, and then you'll, you'll see them in. And then they'll, they'll like have settled down to become bookworms. And then you see them and, and, and they, they're, they're struggling with identity. They fight with identity. And here's the problem. When you struggle with that kind of identity and you let that kind of identity identify you, it can be taken away at any moment. If that's where your identity comes from, you can lose your identity. Christ-centered identity leads to the fullness of God. It's something that can't be taken away. Because he loved you before creation and he, he's going to love you longer than creation. Right. It's a fullness that no one can take away. And and the problem sometimes we do with this, guys, that that, that makes it bad is we try to make good things, God things. And we make good things, God things. What we get is counterfeit gods. Right. Oh, this this is a good thing that that, that should be good. Right. And and we claim it and we make it like a like a godly kind of thing. But. Here's the problem with counterfeit gods. They overpromise and underdeliver. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because you thought once you hit six figures, like like everything in life was going to be easy. You didn't realize that meant you were just going to spend more and get yourself in trouble. Right? Some, some of you thought by building the, the next biggest house, that was going to solve all your issues. You didn't realize that house that you built still ain't big enough for the family that's coming. You, you, you're never satisfied, right? You, you, you thought the single life wasn't right, so you needed another person. And then you realized how evil people were. Or you realized how selfish yourself was. Right? And, and, and it goes on. Or, or the car. 
You know, and then you realize they would come out with a better car next year after you spent a hundred thousand dollars on this new cool car. Right? They they overpromise and underdeliver. Things don't matter of fact, let's put it this way things can't fulfill you. Because you weren't created to be fulfilled by things. You got a, a hole in your heart that was created there so that it can be filled by God and God only. There's no true long, lasting fulfillment outside the fullness of God. Without the fullness of God, we lose our, our sensation of feeling. Look at Proverbs 13, 25. Words of wisdom. Solomon writes and he says, A righteous man eats until he's satisfied, but the stomach of the wicked is empty. What's he saying? He's saying, I got that disease I was talking about. Like they're never full. They're never satisfied. They're always wanting more. They're always searching. Our hearts and our minds say, if you only had more of whatever your blank is. Paul is saying, you don't need more of whatever your blank is. You need more of Christ. You need the fullness of Christ. You need to realize the power of Christ. There's a a quote I didn't get to give the guy credit because I couldn't find it. But he says, our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. I thought that was so good. Our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. Why? Because we're working so hard to try to do it on our own. And until we get rest in Christ, we miss it. Third thing, last thing. Praying for God's power provides hope beyond our expectations. Hope beyond our expectations. Look at 20 and 21. Verse 21 by itself. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. What can he do above and beyond? Not only all that you can ask, but all that you can even think of. When I first read this, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I wrote down the church got to start dreaming bigger. Because what Paul is writing and he's calling us out on and he's saying he can't only do more than you can think of. He, I mean, he can't do more than you can ask. You can do more than you can even think of. So in other words, you got to get a bigger imagination. Right. You, you got to start thinking bigger and, and hoping bigger. You, you got to start thinking that just because he took the baby from you on Wednesday don't mean the baby ain't coming back home on Friday. Right. I mean, you, you, I wasn't thinking that that was be, I was thinking like, hey, this was just something the Lord wanted to do to get this mama back. Right. And, and I had all kind of pastoral words of wisdom that I thought would sound good and can make somebody feel good when they're in the middle of hurt. Knowing that there wasn't no words that could, could, could make those words hurt. It was only the power of Christ inside that could able to sustain them through that. Right. But what I didn't think of was that I was going to get a text a couple of days later that said, he's back. You, you can't think of stuff like that. God said, you better start thinking bigger. You think you're too small. So, I, mean, I, I, I don't know how we could fill every seat in here after all this coronavirus stuff and all that. I bet we can. I don't know how long it'll take, but I bet we can. I bet we can fill them so much we got to knock down walls and put more chairs in if you want the truth. Right? I bet we got 11. You think God gave us 11 acres across the street and a commercial well already and power already because he ain't got something big planned over there? It might just be to cut the field and have a big old tent arrival every year. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what it is. But I don't think God did all that because he didn't have big plans. You got to start thinking bigger. Hoping bigger is what verse 20 said. The tragedy of this life is we worry, we worry so much about other people's expectations. That's where we mess up. We worry so much about other people's expectations and what other people are thinking that we miss out on what God's thinking. What, what, what did he say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 when he wrote them? The, the same kind of idea that he's writing to the church Ephesus. 
And, and he tells him, he says, I'm sure, Luna, look at it, I'm sure of this. He's not saying, I wonder. He's not saying maybe. He's saying, I know. I know this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What he's saying is this right here. You got power to keep on going if you just keep on going. You, you got power that you might not be where you want to be right now, but, but you're not where you used to be either. And that's a pretty darn good thing, right? He's basically saying in Ephesians 3 and Philippians 1, he's saying God's not done yet. He loves you so much that he came where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you're at. Right? Verse 20, he's saying God wants to blow your mind. Wants to blow my mind with what? He's going to give you peace beyond understanding. Yeah, that'll blow your mind. Right? He's going to give you so much joy. It'll blow your mind. He's going to give you so much love. It'll blow your mind. So much strength. It'll blow your mind. So much power. It'll blow your mind. He's going to give you these things that's going to blow your mind because you couldn't even think of them. That's how big they are. Look at Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the spirit also joins to help in the weakness. Oh, man. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the spirit himself intercedes for us through the unspoken groanings. Paul, Paul's in the middle of this prayer and he's probably remembered because because he wrote that church, too. Right. And, and he's probably he's probably remembering. He goes, man, even when you get to this moment where you can't even think and imagine. The spirits gonna come in and intercede for you with 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 unspoken groanings. He also writes in Romans later in chapter eight, and, and he reminds us that the death of Jesus in the past is the security deposit for our future. He says, don't give up yet. Keep on pressing on. Verse 21, last one. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Look at, I love 21, man, because once again, Paul goes back to, it's not just you personally, it's collectively the whole church. He's staying on this unity thing, man. He He's not going to shy away from it. And what he's saying is when you get power inside of you, it's got to come out of you. When power, you better hope it comes out of you if you get, if you touch power, power, right? Paxton, uh, was our, our golf cart plugger in her the other night. Well, we got a rule. If you rode the golf cart that day, you got to plug it back in. We also have a new rule now because evidently my gate child wasn't smart enough to know that you don't plug it in in the rain. So he comes home and it's raining and he knows that he was the one who did it. So he's plugging this thing in and I hear, and he's mad and I hear him kick the door and I hear stuff getting thrown and around the corner and his face is red and it's angry and he wants to choke his little brother because his little brother wasn't there to help. And I said, son, what happened? He goes, I got shot. Why? Because he was dumb enough to plug a golf cart in in the rain. Also, why? Because power got to have a way to get out of you when it gets into you. And that's a good thing, by the way, because if it don't get out of you, that's when you get in trouble. Right. But is that not the same? Should it not be the same when we talk about this power with Christ? Should, should it not be something that we touched and we got to yell and scream and, and it affects our, our face expressions and our emotions? I walk out there in the middle of the rain. He's dancing. Why? Because the, the, the storm became minimal when he realized he could dance in the rain. How about that for, for something to apply a little bit later? Right. When you realize you can dance in the rain, the storm becomes minimal. 
that ought to be like one of them tweeting things or whatever, right? Uh, a t-shirt. Give me a t-shirt with it, right? Here's Paul's want, guys. Let's wrap this thing up. When the church understands and the church walks in God's eternal purpose, God's going to be glorified and the church will fulfill its important duty of glorifying the Lord. What he's saying is when you guys start acting and moving and treating one another and act and, and, and doing what I've commanded you to do and it starts looking like the kingdom here on earth, then you're glorifying me the right way. We, we said in the, we said this was Paul's second praise break, right? So, so it, if you remember, the first one is about knowledge. The, the first one's like the salesman at the, at the technology store, right? I don't know if you want to buy a new phone or if you want to buy a smart TV or whatever it is, right? But you go down there and you can read the brochure and the guy can tell you all the gadgets it's got and all the cool factors it's got and all the abilities it's got. That's Ephesians chapter one. That's knowledge. Paul says, I want them to have knowledge. I want them to, to begin to understand. But what good is knowledge and understanding if it never has application? So Paul gets to chapter three and he's on this thing on unity and he knows he's getting ready for the whole rest of the book to be hands on application. So for those of you who's been like, I'm ready for application, get ready to get your butt kicked. Right? Because some of the stuff is hard. We're going to talk about sex and we're going to talk about your role as a parent and we're going to talk about your role as a wife and your role as a husband. All the little boys on the front row go, hey, Sex, yeah. Hey, uh, save it. Right? So, so, so as it goes on this thing, but here's what he says. Ephesians chapter three, he pauses to pray again. And he, say, he says, you don't need to know what all the TV in the, in the new phone can do. You need to know how to do it. It ain't going to do you no good to get your big old fancy TV for the, for the big game. And you can't figure out how to get to the app that you want to watch it on. You ever been there? I had no, I had no remote to Reese. Say, son, find the football game. All right? We got 62 different apps we got to have to get all the football games that we like to watch. I don't understand. Why can't we have one app for all of it? Right? So, so, so we, we'll bounce around from one thing to one thing of the game and on and we'll, we'll eventually find it. Right? And, it, and, and it's good. But it don't do no good if you don't know how to use it. Right? So what he's saying is when he gets to Ephesians chapter three, he goes, I prayed for you guys to have knowledge. Now I'm praying for you guys to have application. Because now's the time you got to get hands on and understand how to do this stuff. Right? So let's pray for God to do that through the rest of this chapter. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for this letter to the church in Ephesus. We thank you for how much it relates to us, Lord God. With darkness all around, we pray for that power source, Lord God. God, we pray just as, as Paul paused to pray, Lord, that now we'll go beyond knowledge and understanding, Lord. We'll start applying this stuff. We'll start doing this stuff. We'll start acknowledging that it's a change that comes from within. Father God, I pray that you come in and change our inner being, our inner man, our inner spirit. And you change it in such a way, Lord God, that it affects everything outside. God, that it'd be like if we were to touch electricity here on earth, Lord God, it would have to change our reaction. And I pray that others get to see it, Lord God. And I pray that as they see it, Lord God, it makes them hungry for it. Lord, I pray that this be something that we begin to do, not only in this church, but the church as a whole, Lord God. God, that we surrender to your headship. And the body, Lord God, begin to do what the brain says it's supposed to do. Father, we thank you and love you. Your great and holy name. Amen.